If you want to know what the other half of that word is, you'll have to ask a less family-friendly podcast. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, I speak with Kevin Jacobson and Justin Burgess of Wargames LLC about their current Kickstarter, Blue Falcon. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by Kings Hobbies and Games. Kings Hobbies and Games is your premier dealer of premium gaming, modeling, and painting products. You know, I've talked at length about the great products Tim is putting out for your ultra-modern games and more recent historical games under the Special Artists and Services Miniatures brand. But did you know that Tim also carries historical and modern models from such companies as Black Scorpion, Perry Miniatures, Stussy's Heroes, Warlord, and Elheim? Not to mention historical building laser cut MDF kits from Foreground. Check out all of the products available from Tim at kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. When we return, my discussion with Kevin and Justin. Uh, first, I just want to let you know that there have been some significant technical issues with the production of this episode, and I'm hoping to get them ironed out. So I apologize that the sound quality isn't as good as it has been in more recent episodes. I am working on getting those ironed out. But in the meantime, here's my discussion with Kevin and Justin. Okay, and we are back. It's my pleasure to introduce to you guys, my listeners, to Justin Burgess and Kevin Jacobson. Two of the minds behind War Games LLC. Guys, uh, why don't you introduce yourselves and tell us what makes you a veteran wargamer? Hey, Justin, you want to go first? Yeah, sure, I'll take this. All right, thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess, uh, like you said, we got myself and, uh, and Kevin here. We got another uh, member of our team that's halfway uh, around the world. I guess what makes me a veteran wargamer is I am a veteran, obviously. Uh, left the army about three weeks ago. So hair's growing a little long here, so I'm nice. So, uh, so we're getting there. I was a, uh, I was a captain in the infantry. Uh, I spent some time in Iraq and Afghanistan. I played, uh, played all those fun games. I'm sure most people know what they're talking about. Uh, as far as, uh, as, as far as a war gamer, uh, you know, I, I used to play Warhammer 40k back in the day. Uh, didn't, didn't go down the magic gathering hole. That much. <laughs> got into the, got into the board games, and then, uh, you know, as I got older, obviously, you know, cards became a lot more accessible once you're in the military and more so than board games. So I transitioned to that. Uh, I met Kevin writing through uh, through the Duffer blog and uh, some various contacts and ideas. We uh, talked about Feedback Hunter, but I founded our first company and produced Feedback Hunter. It uh, cards against humanity style game for the military. And uh, yeah, now we're, uh, now we're here talking about the new game Blue Falcon. That says it makes me a better All right, Kevin? Uh, yeah. Um, I. Uh... I am a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, I was in for five years. Got out in uh, 2013, and um, strange coincidence, I just noticed looking at the date that uh, I got out three and a half years ago to the day. Uh, I I don't know how I know that the half year of November is May, if it is, if I'm counting right. But subtraction that's maybe. Yeah, that's that's somewhere stuck in my brain, and. Uh, yeah, so af- it was well after I got out actually that um, that I came on board with the uh, uh, the War Games LLC project. Um, <clears throat> so my beard is already 
grown in pretty nice. Uh, I was the the last of the group to join. I, I still wonder actually why on earth, uh, you know, Justin and the others, uh, you know, saw what I had to offer and then let me come in. But um, as far as my my personal gaming history, I've I've mostly been a video gamer. Uh, pretty much been playing games all my life since I was a whole roller. But I've done other other board games in there too and card games. Uh, I did go down the Magic the Gathering rabbit hole, and uh, I'm still still down that rabbit hole, uh, sinking money into that damn game. And uh, yeah, and these days I like uh, pretty much anything with strategy, uh, multiplayer gaming. I've been playing a lot of Rocket League lately. That is just addicting as all hell. That's what makes me a veteran war gamer. Excellent. Now you guys released Fubar cards um, within the past year. That was a pretty good success for you guys as far as Kickstarter is concerned, right? Oh yeah, we mm. uh, ran this thing. Uh, what, what really put us over the top? We uh, we, we kind of turned this idea from a discussion, you know, amongst some some duffel bug people and some friends, and uh, kind of rolled with the idea. We sat on it, for a and then we decided to push the Kickstarter and various contacts. Qualified success. Since then, we've uh, released an army expansion, a navy expansion, a marine corps expansion, and we have a few others in the works. And that's all going on in the background. Uh, you cut out a couple times there, Justin. Um, one thing I uh, might not have got picked up. Uh, I did want to point out that we we funded about seven times our uh, our goal on Fubar, like seventy thousand. It was a little bit more than that. I don't remember the exact number. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just went viral. Everyone was sharing it. Um, yeah, we didn't we didn't really pay for any marketing. I remember that pretty clearly. Um, it was just grassroots, completely what we could get by uh, by asking people and spreading the word ourselves. And uh, yeah, we I think we ran one very very short ad on on Facebook or something, and and that's it. Yeah. So that that brings us to Blue Falcon, uh, your latest project on Kickstarter. Currently, about halfway through. Am I right? You're about halfway through the uh, campaign. Is that correct? I think I think we have about 15 days left. Okay. So as of recording on the 17th of May, about about 15 days left. Now, where are you funds wise? We're sitting pretty good. Uh, we're at about 71% right now. Uh, we have, once again, some contacts and major news organizations that we're waiting on that it's going to push uh, in probably the next week. Uh, it, it's going to be really, uh, really great. Yeah, we already have uh, a couple um, organizations who also want to, are also interested in, in uh, retailing uh, the game. So that's not necessarily a Kickstarter success, but, uh, you know, we got foot in the door. Now, one of my one of my British listeners uh, pointed out to me in a message that it looks like your campaign is U.S. only. Are you open to the possibility of sending out of the U.S. for an additional charge, or is that something that they'll need to contact you directly about? I could take this one. I, I think contacting directly might be the best way. Um, the size and scope we got—I don't want to say we got burned with Fubar, um, but when we were running it, we added another. I say we. The, the <laughs> 
Yeah, it was my fault. So we toolbar was so popular, people wanted another reward tier where they could just get more decks. Um, they loved the idea. They wanted more. So we added the reward tier, and we didn't turn off international shipping. And unfortunately, we hadn't adjusted our campaign for that. Um, that's kind of a long rambling answer. Tell him, yeah, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd love to. The other reason we didn't is honestly because Blue Falcon is very U.S. military specific. We tried to keep it generic, but unlike, unlike Foobar, which has a lot more options and there's just a lot more cards in it, um, the jokes can be generic enough. You know, there's a lot of popularity in Australia, uh, obviously in, in Great Britain, uh, New Zealand, things like that. Uh, most English-speaking countries, we've had people reach out. Blue Falcon is, is definitely more U.S. US centric. Right. So, and again, but if he's interested, yeah, just tell him to contact us. Yeah, so, yeah, I'll definitely, definitely need to make a point that I do have a large number of U.K. and Australia listeners. So, you know, folks outside the U.S., you know, if you want to, and we'll have the contact information in the show notes for sure, if you want to get in on the the Kickstarter, don't be afraid. Just contact Justin or Kevin directly. Like I said, we'll have the contact information in the show notes uh, for you to do that. For those not familiar, if if you guys don't mind, parents, if you're listening in the car with with uh, Timmy and Tammy, turn the volume down for the next minute or so because we're going to give you the the real deal on what the name Blue Falcon comes from. So guys, go ahead. So, you know, it's all about it's all about history, you know, in, in my mind. And there's many definitions of the Blue Falcon. You know, I, I think it actually came from the Crusades. Um, you know, there was a uh, there was a flag. You know, you had the uh, Christians fighting the Muslims, and there was a there was a lot of symbolism going on, and things needed to be seen over the battlefield. And uh, you know, believe it or not, the uh, the symbol of the Templars in in Jerusalem was a, a big blue bird. You know, the, the historians believe it was a falcon. And uh, you know, from from there, it, it just kind of developed, and it took on various meanings. From uh, you know people that people that steal people that get, do good deeds, it, it goes back and forth. Um, but you know, obviously the Templars in the 1400s. I apologize for my poor history lesson, but you know when they got they were they were shunned. The symbol of the Blue Falcon became really looked down upon, and uh, you know ever since it's been used in kind of a negative connotation. You know you don't want to be a Blue Falcon. This crazy pulp from the 1500s. Yeah, and I think the biggest transformation uh, in in the the Blue Falcon legacy was in the American Civil War. Uh, the North would use actual falcons for, you know, their scouting and, and field hunting, and uh, they would drape them in the American flag. And so these were the red, white, and blue falcons. And hatred of the Blue Falcon is still, it's part of that Confederate culture. But it, you know, it spread all the way across the country. So now everyone hates the Blue Falcons as it's been shortened to. Right, right. Yeah, and you guys might not be aware of, but in the uh, in uh, Guatemala, there's a special forces unit called Los Halcones Azul, which of course translates as the Blue Falcons. So, them. yeah, I, I would hope that the uh, that you guys get a lot of uh, like a lot of Kickstarter backers out of uh, you know your major cities in Guatemala, you know Quetzaltenango, San Marcos, you know Guatemala City itself. So. I'm sure there's thousands of listeners from Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably every single person in the entire country. Pretty much. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm huge in Benelux also. 
<laughs> I laugh because I don't I don't even know if that's a city or a person. <laughs> so so let's let's talk about a minute about the game itself. So Blue Falcon can charitably be described as a screw your neighbor type game, correct? Right, yeah. Okay, so walk us through uh, a game of Blue Falcon. Kevin, you want me to take this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's a, it's a standard player elimination game. So uh, the, the meta, as you were, is to, uh, as you will, excuse me, is, is to basically draw as many cards as possible because the end state is to get a Blue Falcon card. Each deck has five in there. Um, and it, it's an action card that you can play on your opponent and it essentially knocks them out of the game. You know, it seems a little overpowered because that's the entire point. You know, the games aren't supposed to last more than 15, 20 minutes per round. Um, but essentially, it boils down to you draw cards. You know, we can go into the specific rules in a minute. But you want to draw as many cards as possible to either get the Blue Falcon first or get a card that will protect you from one of your opponents that gets the Blue Falcon. And in essence, that's it. You, uh, you're continuing to draw through various combinations of cards, blocking your opponent's ability to draw, increasing your own. And... Um, last player standing wins that's the macro level i guess uh, yep. now micro level there's there's action cards there's there's interrupts right there's there's four types of cards okay uh, character cards and those are uh, named after popular military i guess stereotypes you would uh, you would call them um, those can be played one per turn um, and they're typically more powerful than action cards and they have enduring effects of anywhere up to one to three turns uh, which is why you can only play one per round uh, now, obviously, there are some cards in there that will change that. Uh, the action cards, uh, they're, they're colored differently. There's two subcategories of action cards. There's offense and defense. Uh, offense in Blue Falcon means that you are preventing your opponents from uh, drawing cards. Uh, defense is you are either rejecting an action that's been played on you or allowing yourself to, to draw additional cards, uh, all with the goal of burning down the deck faster. Um, what, so to start... What you're going to start with the game, you're going to have three cards in your hand. Uh, you can play one character card and as many action cards as you want. Um, they're, each card is self-explanatory, so I can't go into the details for each one. Um, the good thing is it, it minimizes our rule requirement. We, we think it keeps the game fairly simple. So you can sit down in about two minutes, you can pick the game up. And if you have questions, the specific instructions are written on each card. Uh, for instance, you know, reverse the tornor, draw one less card. Uh, you know, play on one opponent, they will draw one less card this turn. Uh, you will draw plus two cards this turn. Things like that. Okay. And now having seen some of the sample cards myself, I, you know, you've got some pretty good artwork going. Uh, what, how, how did you get in touch with your artist and, and how's that process been uh, working with her? Uh, well, the original contact um, was made uh, by our, our third member uh, who's not here at the moment um uh, he really he just reached out just a regular old email um uh talked to megan wilcoxon of scuttlebutt uh scuttlebutt comics being a, like a, a navy centric uh online webcomic and uh she was former uh former navy and uh I don't know exactly what was said, but uh, he he brought up the possibility of of working on a game together where where she does the art and we make the game. Uh, we've done actually a quite a bit of creative uh, collaboration as well. So you know she kind of has her hand in a bit of the gameplay. Um, 
which is probably a little bit uh, less not not done really in in the in the board gaming world. And now I'm just realizing I, I'm not entirely certain if that completely answers your question. No, that that's fine. So you're you're obviously geographically separated. Yeah. That that has not been an issue as far as uh, your collaborative process. I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> as evidence in our last couple of days of trying to get this this podcast together, uh, you guys are Skype masters <laughs> at this point. Yeah, we are. Uh, we had the added, I've had the added advantage of being able to bounce back and forth between posts. So uh, until recently, when I left the army, I was stationed in uh, Tacoma, Washington. So I was only about a forty minute drive from Kevin. So we saw each other in person on several occasions. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, went out several nights that we don't remember very much of, but we had good times <laughs> were had by all. Um, and then once I moved, I moved, and now I'm currently down in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but my folks live in uh, in Yorktown, Virginia, which just happens to be about 20 minutes away from uh, our third member, Mike Knickerbocker. So uh, once I've had a chance to go up there and go see my folks, I, I, I get a chance to go pop in and see him. So I'm the only member of this team that has met the other two members of this team in person. <laughs> but, <laughs> If you want to go on communication, I mean, I, I think we communicate more than you know most most people do that live next to their neighbors. I mean, we're, we we have a constantly running stream of thought, which is either just us gossiping or sending board game ideas. We're all very active in the board game community, uh, as well as the vet community. So when there's new ideas, uh, new kickstarters, kickstarters that have failed, uh, you know, we, we kind of do a, an after action review of that, to see what's going on. And uh, we, we just like to pick up things from the industry to see what the vibe is at, see what's selling, what's not. Right. And, uh, yeah, so it could be midnight, you wake up in the morning, and it turns out the other two of us have had a long chat about a certain design of games. So you, you catch up and you contribute. It's just kind of a running conversation over the day. Uh, yeah, and I think Blue Falcon did make it a bit more complicated uh, because Megan happens to live in Okinawa, Japan right now. Uh, so that means the... Uh, the continuity of conversation has only gotten more extreme. Someone's always catching up with someone else. Yeah, I... uh, but there's there's not there's not any uh, problems with communication. Like if we need to get a hold of someone, it's it's always possible. They just might be asleep for a little right. bit. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's fascinating that the you know, what the internet has allowed us to do is exactly what you guys are doing is, you know, you're basically creating the company from the ground up with little to no actual physical contact between, you know, the three primary members of, of the company. Yeah. When you say it like that, it does sound pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm part of the future already. Transcending time and space. Right. The the hardest thing for this one, honestly, was unlike, so FUBAR, I don't, I don't want to knock our own product. You know, FUBAR's great. It's fun. I have a copy of it sitting here on my desk. Um, I've played it at parties. So if I'm playing my own product, I know it's good. But the, the thing is, we're not we're not claiming to be any kind of geniuses here. I mean, I mean, Cards Against Humanity took it from apples to apples. We took Cards Against Humanity. It's open source, uh, which is why you'll see so many variations on the game. Uh, we just we just realized there was a niche that had been filled. We thought it was funny. Uh, we've mentioned before we were duffel blog writers. Um, somebody had half jokingly started a thread about, hey, you know, here's some. What if, what if we have military cards against humanity? Um, and then it grew from there. It turned a discussion into a no kidding. Let's make a, a list just for fun. Next thing you know, we got several hundred cards. You're right. Um, but where I was going with that, I didn't mean to ramble, is, is that there was no there was no creative thought behind it. We, we the funny the funny aspect was there, but from a design perspective, 
Um, we we didn't we didn't invent, reinvent the wheel. We added a small drinking game. Um, not really appropriate to talk about here, I guess. You know, because it's not really even a board game per se. It just adds a little fun to it. But but other than that, we just kind of took what we had done with the literary community and we just overlaid it on existing Cards Against Humanity product. Right. Uh, where I, so so it was very easy to collaborate because at the end of the day, it's an Excel file. Um, it's it's just open communication. You have a couple people edit it and then you select from the cards you have. When you have Blue Falcon, you're designing a game, um, which means playtesting, playtesting, playtesting over and over and over again. And it's incredibly hard when when you are spread out like that to talk in person. You know, if you're having a conversation like this and you're playing a virtual game or you're trying to relay issues that you had, you know, maybe Kevin and his friends played with a deck and they used a different rule. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. He talks about it. He's he's ecstatic about it. So I try it. Maybe I don't have the same results or vice versa. So it, it just it, it makes playtesting makes the collaborate the need for playtesting makes collaboration a lot a lot more difficult. So it's a lot more different <laughs> a lot more difficult. <laughs> um, so it's been a learning experience. You, even now, you know, a year and a half out from Blue Bar, we're still trying to figure out how to do this thing. Right. There's a and I've heard something along those lines about playtesting from a a game designer named Sam Mustafa. He designs uh, tabletop uh, miniatures board or miniatures uh, war games, and he's got a number of different unconnected playtest groups. And I, I believe it was a uh, interview on uh, Meeple's and Miniatures. Actually, he was talking with those guys about getting off sync, the different groups getting off sync with the versions of the rules. That, that each were using. So, you know, one group would be talking about a particular feature that had been completely obviated in a <laughs> in a more recent more recent version. So I can definitely see that being an issue. Yeah, that that's definitely happened to us too. Even with Blue Falcon, uh, uh, I think one of the things that has allowed us to um, at least mitigate the problems from differentiating versions is actually uh, Google Docs mm -hmm. because we can go in and we can edit, uh, you know, all of our assets are digital, so we might as well put them in a format that we can all edit in real time and all see the changes that are being made and be involved simultaneously. And uh, that's been one of our, our greatest tools is um, online real-time collaboration. Right. And... Uh... Have you guys, you know, did you, did you have you guys looked into maybe for future releases looked into uh, different virtual gaming clients like Vassal for real time online playtesting? Uh, I I remember specifically looking at Vassal, um, and then I remember trying to make a um, I tried to make a a very simple playable digital form of uh, Fubar, and this was. Uh, this was like a year ago now, so I don't remember the details. I remember it was incredibly difficult to do, and I didn't actually manage to get it working. But uh, that's definitely something that we can we can look at in the future, you know, as need arises. Right. Um, well, speaking of the future, is do you guys have any projects that you can discuss at this moment that are coming down the pike, or are you just concentrating on on uh, Blue Falcon at the moment? Here, here uh, I don't want to give a teaser, but we can. I mean, we can actually. Let's talk general strategy because I think that's that's more the direction we're willing to one be open about. So I, as I already explained, Fubar was was kind of 
it was our baby. It, it generates some income for the company, but it's not our creative, our creative uh, magnum opus. Thank you. That's perfect description, Kevin. It is not our magnum opus. So Blue Blue Falcon is our first kind of step into the waters of original gaming. So we are very proud of it um, because it, while it while it doesn't seem to be getting the kind of traction in the military community that Fubar did. We, we didn't expect it to because this is a game that's more family friendly. The art is very open and approachable. Uh, Fubar kind of tapped into that that disgruntled veteran community of guys that like you know the kind of the, the rough humor, the the inappropriate jokes, those kind of things. So we, we took we we catered to what the market wants. This is us trying to join an existing market now. Um, and and the goal is or what, what excuse me what we've learned is that card games are uh, obviously cheaper to build than board games um as we've done this in, in these collaboration sessions we've sessions the advantage of kind of talking to your partners every single day is we're just kind of spitballing ideas out and they become full-fledged full-fledged games so we actually have what kevin four or five board games in various phases of construction oh at, at one point it was it was like uh somewhere between seven and ten <laughs> Yeah, it's it's and and some of those some of those are just conceptual. You know, maybe it's just two word documents talking about a kind of the vision and the meta for the game. Uh, and then we have two or three that are um, in. We, they've gotten to the point where we've actually drawn out boards and begun play testing. Uh, the problem with that is, you know, where do you expend your effort? This isn't our day jobs, so you know we only have so much time to to do these side projects. And Blue Falcon is live. Uh, we've been working on that pretty heavily. So. Getting time to develop other stuff while getting Blue Falcon set up for uh, success has been kind of difficult. Um, that that didn't really answer your question. <laughs> no. um, so the goal is the goal is Blue Falcon does well enough that we can actually become more established in the community and we can branch into board games and actually start producing some of these other things that we've had on the sides. Okay. And we'd like to we'd like to get into the mainstream as well. Um, I mean, we obviously love the military community. We've been involved ever since. Uh, since active duty with Duffel Blog, and we're not going to just go away with that, but um, but we would also like to, you know, throw in our uh, uh, our creative weight into the uh, the mainstream uh, board game community, and uh, that's probably what our our next game iteration will be. Um, although uh, I know you wanted you wanted specifics, so we can't really do that yet. No, okay, because. <laughs> Blue Falcon hasn't hasn't even released yet, so. I will right. tell you a heartbreaker. So I, I can tell you this now because it didn't come out. So uh, it'll maybe it'll just make me look smarter. So I, I've been working on an idea. I had been working on an idea called Siegecraft, um, for the last about year, uh, but it was it was background. But I had gotten to the point where I I had the game mechanics set up. I actually had a board drawn, and I played a few test games with my neighbors. Um, but because of the demands of Fubar and Blue Falcon and, and our day jobs, I didn't really get to do much beyond that. And then uh, I had a heartbreaker about a month ago. I logged into Fubar. Excuse me, not Fubar. I logged into our Fubar account, and uh, and on Kickstarter, I saw a recommended game in there, and it looked uh, pretty. I, I don't remember the name off the top of my head right now, but the mechanics were identical. And, <laughs> and the worst part is I, I couldn't even get angry about it because when I read their campaign, I said, wow, this is amazing, and I want it back. Yeah, uh, because I mean, we we design these games because they're fun. We obviously would like to make money, but I mean, we love doing it. So it was it was kind of a mixed mixed emotions because I saw this thing that I've been working on for about a year come out, but it looked better than the one I had made. They put a couple <laughs> rules in there that I hadn't thought of. I said, "Man, that was a great idea." And 
and now you can't be mad at him because I'm like, well, I thought this good idea was fun enough to design. Well, now I'm excited that I can go buy this thing. So right, right. <laughs> it's, it's a weird. It's, it's weird being a board a board gamer and a board game creator. Yeah. Well, it, well, it was good, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I can take credit for the the, the decent idea, but I mean, it, that's a whole separate podcast discussion we talk about the origin of board gaming you know and original mechanics because mine was just a bastardization of risk and access and allies and those <laughs> games from various you know it's everybody adds one or two things to make it their own and then they put a, a story or a picture on top of it oh yeah at the, end of, yeah at the end of the day you dig into board games there's maybe five or six different types yeah and then everyone puts their layers on it yeah just yeah. and there's a another one of the podcasts i listen to a lot is called ludology and it's uh discusses the why of gaming and uh you know the the hosts are are noted game designers and they were they were talking exactly about that you you could come up with all the innovative game mechanisms you want but if you have too many that it makes players uncomfortable or they can't jump right into it because they're already comfortable with most of the mechanisms except one or two then it's not going to go anywhere so, for lack of a better term, most of the games you see out there are indeed, you know, oh, this is like, you know, a combination of access and allies and risk, but it's got this. Or it's a combination of, I don't know, uh, commands and colors and just, <laughs> just looking around the room, uh, you know, combination of commands and colors and Necromunda, but it's got this. And, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's perfectly perfectly valid. I mean there's you know where we've come with board games since Monopoly was designed to now is, you know, way 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 far from what things were then. I can only imagine how far things are going to be you know 100 years from now, but you know it's it's not like there are quantum leaps in game design. You know, it's a mm-hmm. it's an evolutionary process and you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, but we're just looking that much further down the road. I, I think the, um, well, my prediction really for the for the future of board game is, uh, and, and a lot of other people kind of share this opinion, uh, I think it's going to be primarily a marriage of board games and video games. Not just that you're playing a board game on uh, some sort of electronic device. We already have those. Mm-hmm. But um, there, there have been attempts to make... Um, you know, like tabletop screens with interactive pieces. And, right. Uh, there, there is currently uh, a whole new gaming industry built around things like the Nintendo Amiibo, where it's uh, figures, physical figures that you buy that do interact with video games in some way by reading the data, you know, off some physical device. And um, I think Disney Infinity actually started that basically, but they also recently pulled out. Yeah, um, but I mean the industry is still growing. There's still there's still uh, progress to be had there. So I mean I think that's the direction that it goes, just this meld of of the two of video games and board games. Yeah, there's there's two of those from the miniatures war game standpoint that I can think of off the top of my head. One is called Golem Arcana, and in Golem Arcana you had the figures had like a little tiny micro dot on them. And you had a USB, no, it was a blue. I think it was a Bluetooth uh, connected, like light pin, for lack of a better word. And you had a Bluetooth enabled device 
this little pen and you touch the dot on the on the figure and it gives you a full readout of the different options on your device and mm. and you play it that way and um i said that there were two at the top of my head and i can't remember the <laughs> the other one at the moment one but, at the top one at the bottom well, uh, i do have another example actually there's there's a series um that's been around in Japan for a long time called Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I believe, I believe it's part of that series. Uh, there was a, an arcade game where you play it with a deck of cards and for each game you played, um, like you had to buy a starter deck, uh, and then each game you played, it would spit you out a random single card, like almost like a booster pack. And the way you played is you would put these cards uh, down on a table in certain formations, and uh, the table could read them, and it would show on the screen you had each card was essentially a small army, and you moved these cards around the table in real time to move that army. Like your army is always going towards its associated card. So you're sliding cards around the table, your armies move, and you're trying to outmaneuver uh, your opponent's army that's doing the same thing. And then they would add new elements with, uh, uh, you could add uh, like fences to force your opponent to go around or break through. Mm-hmm. And that that game was amazing. Uh, unfortunately, the only one around me um, got uh, got closed down and, and shipped away. It's not even in the arcade anymore. So I can't play it. And that makes me sad because it was one of the coolest games I had ever played. Yeah. What was the name of that again? It's it's hard for me to remember because it was all in Japanese. Oh, okay. <laughs> they didn't they didn't even make. I mean, some of the game text was in English, but uh, they didn't bother doing a full localization because I don't know. I guess they didn't expect it to be that popular in America. Which great call, by the way. They were right. Yeah, there was a well. There's a card based game uh, that was published here in the states. I want to say Battleground. Uh, fantasy, uh, and the other game I was thinking of was called X Illus, and it had a computer moderated uh, gaming system. No, Battleground Fantasy was a, a card based game, and what you're discussing sounds exactly like it. Um, mm. And actually, some of Sam Mustafa's games are fully playable either with miniatures or decks of cards for the units as well. And I kind of like the idea of kind of blurring the lines between miniatures games and board games anyway, because it opens up, you know, it it opens up your potential market, I think. Um, And you might get people playing your games that wouldn't even consider playing your games. And I can see, I can see how it would help gameplay as well. uh, If you have computers doing the combat calculations, for example, right. Uh, I mean, that's, that just gets tedious. A lot. A well, lot in many, many games. Yeah, and the thing is, I've, I've played... A friend of mine devised a couple of different computer-moderated game systems uh, back in the late mid to late 90s. And they were pretty clever, and they, they worked really well. But one of the things that he found running those games at conventions is that people just like to roll dice. And... That's... Yeah, that makes sense. You know, at the end of the day, people just like to roll dice and there's a certain segment of the hobby and i'm speaking primarily the miniatures gaming hobby that you know they want to disconnect from computers for their you know for their hobby pursuits you know they 
know, they spend anywhere from eight to ten hours in front of a computer at work. They don't want to sit down in front of another computer for fun time. Unless, of yeah. course, you're listening to the the Veteran Wargamer podcast. That's right. That's obviously. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Yeah, Justin, I think you yes. touched on something bigger in the uh, the well, your comment there. Uh, I, I think you can actually expand that to the entire industry uh, within you know myself, Kevin, and Mike. We've had several of these conversations. There is a and and some of this is anecdotal, and some of this is just just if you go out and actually count the production companies. But it seems like there's been a resurgence of the board game community probably in the last twenty years. Oh, definitely. And it, it seems like there's there's definitely a a, a inverse correlation between. You know, the amount of technology that's taking over our lives and the amount of board games that you see coming out. And and the sad, I don't want to, the sad thing is that, you know, the, the more we're all brought together virtually, it seems like the less we're brought together physically. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a, just like you said, I'm in front of a computer and I'm, I'm guilty of it. Hell, before I did this podcast, I was playing some Overwatch on Xbox. But, uh, <laughs> but, it's, but it's mindless. I play for a little bit and then I'm done. But it's, you're, you're right. There's, there's kind of an aversion, at least... I don't want to say older, but maybe the, the you know guys in their late twenties or beyond that kind of grew up among technology, and they re- they realize that you know if you're not interacting with someone online, unless you have a roommate or you live in circumstances where you can go walk next door, you're you're not interacting with other human beings. You just you just don't. I mean, think about it. You go to the store, you buy what you need, you come home, and you're either online or you're on PlayStation, you're on Xbox, you're on the phone, you're on Facebook. It's just. Board games are, are one of the last mediums where you can sit down and you're interacting with humans. There's nothing electronic there. Um, so was, that was a long rant, but the reason I did was <laughs> I, could, I could selfishly spin this back to me and plug my favorite game, which is the exact opposite of the card game stuff Kevin was talking about. I like to think it's one of the original board games, um, not quite as old as Monopoly, but up there, which is Diplomacy. Oh, which yes. Is my, which is, in my opinion, the oh. best board game ever created. The most frustrating and impossible to get. My wife bought me a board, uh, an actual board game, four years ago. I've played it once. But at any given time, because it, for those of you not familiar who are listening, one, you should pause this and Google diplomacy because uh, you're missing out. You, you can also you can also Google the game that ends friendships. Yes, yes. <laughs> a very a very wise man said, uh, "No game of diplomacy is complete until someone throws a chair." <laughs> but, it's, it, it forces lies lies and deceit on a level not seen outside of a, of a poker table. But I, I just go back to that in the, in the melding of technology. So you, even though I, I'm averse, averse to what Kevin was describing with the cards and the models, my own game, and the reason I, I, I segued back is in this podcast, you can't see me, I'm holding up my phone though. You know, diplomacy used to be played in the mail, you know, in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Because... But and then and then there was a period where that died out, you know, in the eighties and nineties the hobby shrunk to a few probably couple dozen diehards, the same people that like to collect stamps and you know, just <laughs> you know, their their minds are working on a month long level. And then they would publish these things in magazines so you had the results of your moves. Um, and then naturally the thing died out and it, it thought it was gonna just kinda go the way of the dodo. And then smartphones came along and the diplomacy apps have blown up. The internet is now filled with them. And you know, the, the medium that used to take a, a human moderator and a postal worker a month, maybe a week, if you were fast, to figure out what's going on, and you would play a game over a year, it, you know, you're not complete in a week. So, you know, I, I'm playing a game right now where your moves take 12 hours. So you can text people, you can set your moves, you can go about your day. Um, and it adds a whole new dimension 
Uh, once, you, like, like Kevin was saying, though, once you once you meld digital and what you're already playing, because um, you know when you're when you're playing diplomacy in person, you can lie to someone's face, you can do notes, you gotta you gotta look at your mannerisms, and it changes how you play. But you have different options when you're playing electronically. You can't read someone's emotions. What you can do though is you can cut and paste a fake chat message and send it to somebody else and say, hey, this is what this guy is planning to do to you. <laughs> and it, it just adds a level of complexity and something that the original creators of the game 50, 60 years ago never thought would exist. Um, so I don't, I don't know where I was going with that segue, but basically to show that you know a game that was written in the 50s, had a resurgence, you throw a little bit of modern technology onto it without fundamentally changing the game at all, just the medium on the way it's the medium on, on which it's played. And and it's got, you know, the communities are, are the one I'm playing in probably has about 40,000 users, um, which is incredible for a board game that's 60 years old. I mean, I mean right. You're used to right. And I'm a big fan of the game myself. And I've, I've run a basically a play by email game in a, in a group on Facebook, I was a moderator and it was, it was weekly turns. One of the players was actually uh, full disclosure. I'm also a duffel blog writer and also wrote uh, some of the cards that made it into, into foobar and play tester for blue Falcon. So full disclosure, we'll get that out of the way. I should probably, I thought we were going to save that till the end. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I run an upfront podcast here, but okay. uh, you know, one of our fellow writers, who who prefers to go unnamed at this moment was was in the game also. No, that, that was a lot of fun, and that was you know, even as a moderator, I didn't get to see you know the back channel discussions and whatnot, but I did get to see the the front end discussions when I published the results every week, you know, on on Sunday night late because I'd say all right, I need to get all your moves by Sunday at noon. And, you know, and they'd come in through Facebook Messenger and, you know, that was just a really neat exercise. And what's great about diplomacy is that the rules themselves are actually pretty darn simple. Yeah. You know, it, and it's just a matter of, okay, you're attacking with this unit, you're supporting with this unit, and my two beats your one. Okay, now I, you know, that's my dirt now. Yeah. And... The, yeah, my dirt. Yeah, I, <laughs> I used to play diplomacy. Yeah, that's my dirt. <laughs> um, when I was on active duty, I played diplomacy a bunch with uh, the guys that were in my unit, and I picked that up from one of the guys I played with. That's my dirt. You're on my dirt. So anyway, um, yeah, going through that process and being a moderator is, if if you're into diplomacy, I highly recommend. And there, I'm sure there's diplomacy groups up out there somewhere, and I might actually throw it out, uh, Justin, sometime to, to do one of these again. Uh, probably not right now. I'm a little busy, but in the future I might do it again because it was a lot of fun just to moderate. Absolutely. Since we're since – we're, let's, let's keep the Diplomacy Love Fest going for just like two minutes. Please. <laughs> but Please. I'll, here, I'll, cy- I'll cycle it back to the design and, you know, board gaming and what we're talking about here. I, I like – when I'm personally designing a board game, and I did it with Siegecraft um, – my failed experiment, which I was still very proud of, and another another one, an unnamed project that I'm working on. Um, the, it just reinforces map design because, like you said, the rules for diplomacy are so simple. But at the same time, once you've played it three or four times, you gain an appreciation for how perfectly playtested that game was. Mm-hmm. Um, every single move and combination has been perfectly balanced 
so seven seemingly disparate countries with different amounts of combinations of units and territory and supply all still have a fairly equal chance to win. Now you go back, you know, there's 60 years of diplomacy data, so obviously I, I believe it's Turkey, then France, then Russia, then England, you know, and, and in descending order, you know, some have higher probabilities to win than others. But for the most part, taking an actual real-world map of Europe, trying to overlay the actual borders of the great powers and the central powers and, and making it work so that when you're, when you're playing a game and you're like, man, if I could just back up here, I could screw. Oh, nope. He made that so I can't jump the gun and, you know, get, get an advantage within the first two turns. It just, I, I always go back to that when I look at, when I look at designing a game or diplomacy. And it's kind of daunting because you realize how intricate. When you're playing a game and you see these squares on a map and it's not just hexagons. I mean, it's actual interlocking territories of uh, irregular shapes. The, the amount of, if, if it's a good game. The, the amount of testing and iterations it takes to, to make that not only fun but fair is, is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. You mentioned data for uh, diplomacy. Nodology had an episode recently about, and they talked about something like the you know thirty. Well, it wasn't. It was all the uh, all the logs from the different diplomacy clients that are out there, and. Somebody went and compiled all the data from all the logs of all the online diplomacy clients that are out there to predict when someone was lying. I, you know what, Jay? I've I've read either this article or I've read somebody else using the same data. But I've read something incredibly similar that if X person makes X moves, because it also allows you to one predict if they're lying, and it also the one I read gives you a series of moves or options which you can use to bait your opponent as essentially confirmation of, you know, whether they're telling the truth or right. intentions. Are. So it's, it's feeder moves that you can do that tie into that data you talked about. Yeah, and it's, and it's fascinating because, you know, this very topic that we're talking about, you know, changing the medium of the game is what allows us to take a look at that. Because there are, you know, how many thousands if not tens of thousands of online diplomacy games are active right now yeah you know there for a while in the duffel group we had how many of us were <laughs> were on a, a particular diplomacy client in probably a year and a half we had a, we had at least two or three games going at any given time right and that's just you know you know i think 10 of us were actively involved in that at, at one point but uh yeah that, that's that's a fascinating interaction between computers and analog gaming that I, I think I, I think on a certain level it's going to be more like that. You know, the the game itself doesn't require the computer, it just facilitates. It's going to be a supplement. Right, and the... I'm not, sh I'm not so sure that we'll see... I'm not so sure that we'll see anything along the lines of hybrid games where... Eh, maybe we will. I just in the back of my head, the the diehard gamer wants to roll dice and push figures and tokens and chits. You know. Yeah, I think there'll always be a, a time for that, but um, it's sort of it's sort of like the difference between uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, I I remember as a kid, even like you know playing Magic in uh in middle school, uh back a million and a half years ago. Uh, and me and my friends, we had this, this, uh, you know, not really an idea. Well, I'm sure it, it wasn't original, but 
but the uh, the fantasy was to have a game where you could set the card down and then I don't know, maybe maybe like a virtual representation of your card goes and and does battle with uh, with your opponent's card. And it's just it's like the ability to see in three dimensions um, the cards that you're playing. Mm hmm. Uh, that was just that's a fantasy that has never really a hundred percent left my mind over the years. Yeah, I think you're talking generational gaps now uh, because I, I think you're right. Because I think, but that's the other end of the spectrum where that's pulling video gamers into the board game community by giving them some kind of crossover. Well, I, I think on the the opposite age of, end of the age spectrum, maybe you know late twenties and thirties and higher. We're trying to separate ourselves from the video games, so that visceral, hey, I can hold this meeple, I can, I can roll the dice, I can move my piece around the board. That's it, the appeal to, to get away from that. So I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think maybe it's just a different entry point into the, uh, into the industry. I think maybe we'll see a lot more of what you're talking about as the millennial video game raised population grows. But you'll also see kind of the resurgence of the board game community, the, the purest board game, you know, all analog as as people age themselves out of the the constant exposure to the boxes and the electronics. That's just yeah, it, it could be. I always imagined it as not necessarily being a generational thing, but more like, um, I don't know, someone who's more who's more visual, uh, either in in how how they learn things or how they want to perceive things. Um it's like uh, it's like the the four different different players of magic uh, that they have. There are there are people who value different things, and uh, and one very real subset is um, those who highly value the aesthetic appeal, and those people probably want to see you know something really really awesome like beautiful 3D animations or or something in motion, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's kind of how I thought about it yeah absolutely i mean you know once you get you know looking at the gaming hobby as a whole you know board gaming card gaming you know dice you know dice type games miniature war games you know every, everything in between people gravitate to the different i don't want to say faction the different uh camps for lack of a better term within the greater hobby for a variety of reasons even within a particular game style, like you said, you know, the four different types of magic player and there's, you know, a, a subset that's into the aesthetics. Well, you flip the flip the table to uh, and don't not literally flip the table. But, you know, the, the other side of that on the miniatures of war game side are the people who are into collecting the figures and painting the figures and building the models. And for them, the, the gaming is secondary. So, you know, that's, that's one of the great things about about this greater hobby of gaming is that there are many, many paths into it, and people get a variety uh, of types of enjoyment out of it. So um, I can definitely tell that there's a certain set of gamers who are into the screw-your-buddy mechanic, bringing it back to our topic, Blue Falcon, um, that, you know, this is definitely going to appeal to that to that type of gamer. Now, I'm going to go out on the limb and say that with a 15 to 20 minute playtime, Blue Falcon is going to be perfect for those situations when you've got a gaming night set up and you're waiting for people for people to arrive. Well, what are we going to do until people show up? Hey, break out the Blue Falcon. 
Yeah, it's kind of how we envisioned it. You know, obviously, you're targeting military, so it's a it's a deck. So all, obviously, you can also put it in your pocket. You can put it in a ruck. You can put it in, you know, something that you're traveling. So when you're when you're sitting there in a terminal, or you're sitting there just just bored in a tent, or in front of the arms, or whatever, you can pull it out and play. Yeah, um, it is no foobar. <laughs> it's not. It's not 440 cards. <laughs> yeah, it's you a, can it's a, you can it's take a five it with you. Deck. Uh, we do have some expansion goals. Actually, we have uh, Megan. Megan has a couple cards in her sheet. Um, another duffel, uh, excuse me, another <laughs> blue falcon card. Uh, it's going to change the mechanics, um, but yeah, yeah, it's 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 simple. It goes in your pocket. It's a really quick game. Uh, the goal is you play it a couple times at one sitting if you'd like, um, because a, a game could, in theory, I mean, it's cards. So depending on how you shuffle and how the uh, how the turn goes, I mean, the game could be over in five minutes, ten minutes. Yeah. Um, just just through random chance. Um, so the the segment of the that we're targeting for this is a combination of military. And and I, I guess the term casual gamers. Um, this game really is has nothing to do with Uno except the fact that it's cards. But it's kind of the same. You know, the family gets together, they play it. Um, but it's not serious. It's not. There's not a whole lot of strategy in it. But there's a lot of card interactions. Right. So, uh, we try to strike that balance where if you're not a big gamer, even and I, I hate to sound uh, condescending with this, but the, the people that don't really get board games. Um, you know, you got significant other that comes in, typically doesn't play the game. We try to make it accessible for non-gamers. Who, right. Oh, that looks fun. That art that art looks really attractive, the aesthetics of it. You right, know, right. That, that's what I like about Blue Falcon the most, is it's not complicated, but it, it catches your eye. Right. Um, now, you kind of dropped out there. How many cards? Did you say 55-card deck in the in the starter? Is that right? So we got... We got 55 card decks, and we have a uh, we have expansion goal expansion goals. We have stretch goals um, all the way up to possibly 70 cards, depending on how we fund for the Kickstarter. And uh, the the two biggest changes, most of those are just additional cards, uh, but there are two that will actually alter not so much alter but expand the mechanics of the game. We're going to add a blue falcon card um, because there's a ratio. That's why the current game goes from three to five players. Um, you have to keep the ratio of Blue Falcon cards to players the same. Uh, if you keep it too low, uh, you're either drawing too long or it gets passed around. If you have too many, the game is over too quick. So what we found through many, many, many hours of playtesting is that you got to match those. Um, so what we did is we we wanted to add a new Blue Falcon, but we don't want to ch- fundamentally change the game. So we're offering the uh, the inverted Blue Falcon. The, the the demo image is basically think Top Gun, but it's a Blue Falcon in a cockpit upside mm-hmm. down. Um, <laughs> So it, it's still conceptual. So we're waiting to see what Megan comes up with for that. Because but, I was inverted. Because I was inverted. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but what what it'll do for the the game mechanics is while the other blue falcons you want to get so you can play them on your opponent, that one it burns you. So if you draw it, uh, you lose unless you have a card that can prevent it. Um, so it it just it just adds kind of a. Uh, a Maybe we should call it the blue goose. Oh <laughs> man. <laughs> Rest in peace, Goose. That's right, and I should note at least if, if Facebook is to believe uh, today. today, yes, as of the day we were recording, 31 years ago, Goose, uh, well, Goose got cooked. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, just real, real quick, I've already, I've already pledged, but if I wasn't going to play, or if I hadn't pledged yet, I should say. What's what's my minimum buy-in to get cards? To get cards is uh, twenty bucks. That's it. Simple. Yep. Kept it sweet. 
Um, no, we, we did add shipping, uh, or we, we excuse me, just because of the, the, the different uh, the different levels, uh, they will be paying shipping, but because it's a card that goes in basically a cassette pack, it's, uh, it's incredibly low. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's basically what you're paying for is the custom art. And uh, we encourage anybody that's listening to this that's already backed us. Um, obviously, you, you can up the goal. Because I, I, I'm sorry, what we didn't mention um, is the Blue Falcon cards. Each one of them is unique to this, one of the five services. So Army, Navy, Air Force, etc. Um, Megan custom drew each one of them. And what she did is she also took the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the, not the drafts, but I guess the digital proofs of those cards. And she turned them into full-size service posters. And she signed them. Um, and, and full full wall size proofs of those are going to anybody who backs the higher tier. So forty bucks or more will get you not only it'll actually get you two decks because we know they're fifty five cards. We're not charging people you know board game prices for a deck of cards. So you get two decks, you get a custom poster, any one of the services you decide, and you are pushing us that much closer to our goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just doing some quick math for the folks listening at home. That is $20 is basically 15 and a half British pounds. It's about 18 euro. It's about 27 Australian dollars. So that, you can't beat that. And just go take a look at the Kickstarter. You know, pick a level to, to back and back it. Send the guys an email. Say, hey, I, I live in, you know, Vanuatu. <laughs> What's it? What's it going to cost for you to ship to Vanuatu or Australia or Singapore or wherever you happen to be listening from? Um, you know I Jay, I can I can just interject right now too. If there's if there's enough interest, and when I say enough, I don't, I don't want to put a cap on it. But even if you know we get a dozen or so, if, if there's people that are legitimately interested back in this game that have been overseas, um, we we can talk about throwing another tier up because you can limit it. So even though uh, we're only doing U.S. shipping for the other tiers, we can maybe look at the specific. You know, you do have the option in Kickstarter to add tiers. Okay. Um, but like, like I said, one, we didn't think the interest would be there because this is U.S. targeted. It's our traffic. So, but if the if the audience is there, I mean, at the end of the day, we're producing this. Yeah, we uh, we we changed the Fubar campaign when when people were asking for more. They're like, yeah, I don't want to ju- I don't want to buy just one. I want to buy like three copies or. I mean, someone asked for like ten. We didn't yeah, do yeah. that, but <laughs> that was a special. Uh, we had I, had made, I worked with them while playing on that one. So yeah, there was a guy who bought ten copies. He loves it. I don't know what he did with it, but he got ten bucks to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's outstanding. Well, we're we're pretty much coming up on time uh, now. In some of the hype I was throwing for the recording of this episode, I mentioned that we were going to talk about grunt stuff, pogue stuff, and bootleg DVDs from deployment. So I have to ask each one of you, what is your favorite bootleg DVD that you got on deployment? This is a family podcast. So I have <laughs> there were, I think, I think there were several X's in the title. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember what preceded that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so I, mine wouldn't be a single DVD. It would be a series. I'd never heard of Deadwood. Uh, I went to uh, Kabul. I was the S, uh, S4. I was the logistics officer in the search. Uh, deployment was great. We flew straight from uh, Fort Drum in Germany into Kabul. No customs, no Kuwait, no Manus. It was beautiful. Um, 
got on the ground and I spent a month at the uh, the Kabul International Airport in a tent. Uh, <laughs> you know, getting getting crates coming in, getting vehicles offloaded, and then uh, moving them to various locations around Kabul. So, you know, every night it was pretty much just grunt labor, and then I'm sitting in a tent with absolutely nothing to do. So I bought this. I was looking for a series. I, I'd watched either most of them or they didn't interest me. They were weird HBO love stories. So I found this thing called Deadwood. And it was so good, I chain-watched the entire season in about a week and a half. I don't know how much TV that adds up to because I think there's three seasons, but I didn't I didn't get a lot of sleep. Kevin? Um, yeah, I, I got to admit, I, I never got one. I never got a any sort of sort of bootleg DVD. Uh, I would just download stuff, uh, you know, off BitTorrent or something. Oh, if that's I, right. If I had no, if I had no way to access it. S six nerd. S six yeah, nerd. I was a data oh. marine too, so I had access to all the computers <laughs> and everything. I didn't actually. I never used any sort of deployed network to BitTorrent, so don't crucify me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't the guy slowing down Nipper. We have Nipper. So, <laughs> whatever non non secure. So so. We, what do they say? Afghanistan. Your experiences may differ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I've got to admit, the my favorite one is probably it's a toss up between uh, also an HBO series Rome. Oh yeah. Or the classic, the classic British uh, comedy series Blackadder. I have only watched one episode of Blackadder. It was promising. I just, I just didn't have the emotional commitment for another series. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, now that's to say, I, I also got the collected Golden Girls for, for my wife. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Added that. But, yeah, <laughs> that qualifier at the end, though. Yeah, for the wife. For the wife. <laughs> Which is nonsense because it's on all day on Sunday <laughs> on, on TV land or something. It's delightful. Yeah, I mean, I, I bought my wife the entire season, like all, I don't know, 15 or 500 seasons of Criminal, uh, Criminal Minds. <laughs> I like that show. The problem is the Haji ones don't label it, so if you mix up the discs, yeah. you get it like this. <laughs> Next thing you know, you got to put 16 slow-loading discs in your DVD player to figure out what you're watching. <laughs> mm. All right, guys. Again, thanks very much. Uh, everything we talked about is going to be in the show notes, with the possible exception of the bootleg DVDs. Um, again, Justin we'll Burgess. Bonus track. Yeah, there you go. Justin Burgess, Kevin Jacobson, War Games LLC. Uh, thanks, guys, for coming on the show amidst our various technical difficulties. Uh, and again, just if you're listening to this and it still hasn't in the Kickstarter hasn't finished yet, go going back Blue Falcon. It's it promises to be a very very fun game, and it's not that it's not a lot of money. It's pocket money, right? So as always, if the war gaming you're having isn't fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2017. Music courtesy of bensound.com.